Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Hear these words now from the book that we love. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keter Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnium and Zuzim in Ham and Amim in Shavah Kiriathim and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Perin on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the, hill, all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezeon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now in the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them. And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Anur. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask, would you open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed here this morning, may we hear it with joy, what you have to say to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And please don't ever ask me to read that again. <laughs> I practiced that a lot. Too much. 
In uh, February 2021, you may remember last winter that there was a storm that went through central Texas and crippled uh, central Texas, including the city of Austin, with uh, frigid temperatures and ice and snow, caused widespread power outages, hazardous roadways. Many people uh, had to flee their homes in an attempt to find food and water, medication, heat, uh, and many of those people ended up stranded in their cars on the side of the road. Obviously, a city like Austin, not uh, used to that kind of weather, did not have the trucks and the salt and all those things that they needed to keep the road safe. And so there were people stranded, many of them with nowhere to go, and some of them in the more rural areas, even with no cell phone service, just stuck on the side of the road. However, there was one man named Ryan Sively who was not stuck. In fact, he and his 2010 four-wheel drive white Chevrolet Silverado, which he called the Beast, which is pretty funny, he was helping people get unstuck. Using heavy-duty hooks and chains and toe straps, he was able to tow cars to safety, and in some situations, he would tow these cars that he found with the people in them on the side of the road. He would tow them for miles all the way to their destination. There's many articles about him and the things that he did down there, but I read a Washington Post article this week, and in that he said, quote, I went from helping one person to three people to five. At 434 cars, I stopped counting. And as the days went on, Sibley didn't stop at pulling cars that he found on the side of the road, but he also began giving rides to people who needed them, like healthcare workers or elderly who just needed to relocate to some other home, some friend, some family member where there was electricity and running water. If anyone in need, was in need, Ryan was happy to assist them. And this guy's efforts to help his neighbors in Austin is truly inspiring. It's truly an an example of selfless rescue. He refused to really take anything for his efforts. He accepted food if, you know, it was lunchtime or whatever. He accepted gas money if people had it and wanted to give it to him. But he refused to accept anything, even though there were days, he said, where he worked from 4 a.m. almost until midnight helping cars. And this was especially true after he was interviewed on a live local television program and gave out his cell phone number and said, hey, if you need anything, call me, text me. And people did. And haven't we all felt at some point like we needed to be rescued? Maybe not from a physically dangerous situation like those motorists in Austin, or maybe not from literal captivity like Lot, who is in our story we're going to talk about in just a moment, but maybe from something. Maybe you felt ensnared in an unhealthy relationship. Maybe you felt stuck in a job or caught in a cycle of addiction and substance abuse or maybe just trapped under a mountain of debt. That feeling of helplessness is something that we all experience and we have all felt or will feel at some point. And in our passage this morning, we're told this ancient story about someone who needed to be rescued and about someone else who performed a selfless rescue on his behalf. And so from here, I'm going to talk in three parts. First, about rescue. Second, about grace. And third, about community. So rescue, grace, community. So first, rescue. Let's look back for a moment at the passage and walk through the main details of the story. Again, not repeating all these kings' names. But let's look back through the details here for a moment. 
So we're introduced here in this passage to a collection of four eastern kings. These kings are from the region of uh, Babylonia, northern Mesopotamia, that would be like modern Iran, Iraq. And one of these kings, Keterleomer, had previously forced these other five western kings from the Transjordan Valley, which is the area kind of to the east of the Jordan River and Dead Sea and kind of south right there. He forced them to pay him tribute. And this happened often in the ancient world where he said, hey, I won't conquer you, I won't kill you, I won't take everything if you serve me, if you send me money, send me what I need uh, annually, then I promise to leave you alone. And so he had forced these kings to do this at some time in the past. However, for some reason that we're not told about, in the 13th year of this little agreement, the eastern kings decide not to send Keterleomer his tribute and they rebel against him. And this action then causes Keterleomer to call up his buddies, his allies, and say, hey, uh, let's march down there and subdue these rebellious people. And so this happens in the 14th year. And they come southward along uh, this ancient road called the King's Highway. And just to be clear, that is not the same King's Highway that is in Haddonfield, Cherry Hill, Haddon Heights. So just want to be clear, different king, different, different era. But they come down this, this ancient road called the King's Highway down into the desert and back up to the plain where these cities are located. And these two forces were told they meet in the Valley of Siddam, which seems to have been chosen uh, by the local kings, believing that these bitumen pits, these tar pits, it's this uh, residue that kind of bubbles up from the ground because of petroleum deposits, they must have thought that they would provide them some strategic advantage. So that's where these kings line up. But when Keterleomer and his buddies get there, it doesn't seem to help a whole lot. And the rebellious kings are defeated. The Eastern Coalition uh, then does what armies throughout the millennia have seemed to always do, have done. They plunder and they pillage and they loot these cities. And unfortunately for them, they take one item, or specifically one individual, too many. And Abram, when Abram hears that his nephew, Lot, has been captured, Abram immediately springs into action. He launches a daring, selfless rescue mission. He takes 318 men, we're told, from his household. We don't totally know what it means that they were trained men, but they obviously had some sort of military training, some sort of battle-type training. He takes these men and pursues the kings about 120 miles north, all the way to the city of Dan. And there he devises a simple but proves to be effective military strategy. And he defeats these five kings with his little militia. And then he chases them for about another 60 miles or so north in the direction of Damascus. And after that, he brings back Lot and Lot's family. There is a rescue. The rescue then is complete. And at first glance, this is a pretty simple story. As you read it on the surface, there's nothing super complicated except the names. About, but there's nothing complicated about understanding the text. There's not anything really that complicated about saying, okay, yeah, this is what happened. I get it. What's interesting about the story is not the basic plot, but instead that there's a couple of specific details in here that shed light, I think, on the reason why the author of Genesis included this story. And so we ask the question, what does this rescue of Lot, what does this story of Abraham, what does it add? What does it tell us 
What does it add to the book of the Bible, to the story of God? So look back at me real quick with these two, for these two details. In verse 14, I just mentioned, we're told that Abram pursued all the way to the city of Dan. See, when this story took place, this city of Dan was actually called Laish. It was not renamed Dan until centuries later when the tribe of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, relocated to that region and renamed the city. But the author here in Genesis calls it Dan, and I think he calls it Dan for a reason. For those that were reading or hearing this story, they would have known that when the Israelites, God's ancient people, are in control of that whole area, Dan is the northernmost city in the promised land. It's the very edge of the promised land. And remember that this passage here, Genesis 14, is located only two chapters after where Abram is called by God to leave his country, his kindred, his father's house, and to travel to this land of Canaan. And when he gets there in chapter 12, verse 7, God says to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so we see that God has promised to give Abram this land that has now come under threat by this coalition of four eastern kings. And so Abram, in many ways, plays the part of a king here. And he rises up, he defends this territory, he defends his family, his people, and he, and he defends what he believes God has given him. He is fighting and working to secure God's promise by driving these invaders well outside the borders of the promised land, not just to the edge, not just to Dan, but even north. He pushes them well outside the promised land. Or to put it another way, Abram is cooperating with God to bring about the promise. But this passage isn't just about the land. There's a second detail in here as well that sticks out. Verse 16. It says that when Abram brought back the possessions and brought back Lot and his family, he also brought back the women and the people. The women and the people. Who are these other people? Well, they seem, scholars believe, to be other men, women, and children who were taken captive from Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abram doesn't just rescue his own blood relatives. He doesn't just go on this crusade for his own nephew, but he also rescues many others that were also captured by these kings. And remember again, chapter 12, which Jim preached on earlier this fall in 12, 1, when that calling, when God gives this calling to Abram, he says this, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great in here so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see here in this story of this battle of these kings, of this rescue of Lot, that Abram is demonstrating that he and his descendants will indeed be that blessing. They will be a blessing to the whole earth, not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles, to non-Jews, to everyone. All the family of the earth will be blessed through him. And so what we see in this passage is that God is using Abram to accomplish his redemptive plan. God uses his people to accomplish his redemptive plan. And in the same way that I believe future hearers and future readers of this story would have been encouraged 
especially when you think of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, coming towards this land. They hear this story. They read this story. They would have been encouraged to say, yes, we also can, can work with God to carry out this mission that God has put us on, to carry out this promise. And in the same way that they would have been encouraged, so can we be encouraged. Because here we sit on the other side of the cross, and no longer is there a land for us to fight for, but God still has a rescue mission that he's seeking to carry out. And his plan A to accomplish that is through his people, through the church. Uh, we're part of a denomination called the Reformed Church in America. Many of you know that. If you don't, come to the In Covenant class. We'll talk about it. But in the preamble to the Book of Church Order, there's a really great definition for the church. And it says this. The church is a gathering of persons chosen in Christ through the Holy Spirit to profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in order to embody God's intentions for the world. Gathered by the Spirit around word and sacrament, the church fulfills its call with the expectation of the reign of Christ as it participates in mission, in calling all persons to life in Christ, and in proclaiming God's promise and commands to all the world. See, like Abram and like his descendants, we also, as God's people, are a missionary people. We are a sent people, a people whom God chooses and delights to use to accomplish and to realize his plan of redemption. And everyone who is a follower of Jesus, I believe, is called and invited to participate in God's rescue mission. And just like Abram, we can believe in God's promises and we can trust in God's character in order to do risky things for the sake of the kingdom. It's rescue. Let's talk about grace for a minute. Grace. Last week, Jim mentioned in his sermon, when Abram and Lot separate, Genesis chapter 13, that Lot was moving in the wrong direction that he chose the Jordan Valley and separated from Abram. And this week we see more of the same, that Lot is continuing to move in the wrong direction. In chapter 13, last week, verse 12, the text says that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. But in our passage this morning, did you catch in verse 12? It says that he was now dwelling in Sodom. So, so Lot had continued to move in the wrong direction. He had moved inside the walls of this city. And you could say in many ways that his capture by these eastern kings was in some ways his fault. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been inside this city to be plundered and looted and captured. And moreover, later in Genesis chapter 19, which we'll get to in January after the season of Advent, we'll find out that Lot... After this rescue from Abram, he not only goes back to that area, but he goes back to Sodom. He goes back to living inside of Sodom, and he goes even further than that. His slide in the wrong direction continues. His daughters are engaged to the men of Sodom, and he's become a local leader of some kind, sitting in the gate, some kind of an elder-type position. He continues to move in the wrong direction, even after he's been rescued. And Lot's actions, as I was thinking about this passage this week, his actions remind me of Proverbs 26, 11. Maybe you've heard this before. 
Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. He just does the same mistake again, even after he's already been captured. To put it bluntly, Lot doesn't really deserve to be rescued. He doesn't deserve God's rescue. He doesn't deserve to receive Abram's continued generosity. However, despite his past, his present, and in God's foresight, his future foolishness, God still chooses to show him grace. He still chooses to rescue him through his uncle, Abram. And this is a common pattern that we see all over the New Testament, all over, or all over the Old Testament, and all over the New Testament, that God's patience and mercy to his people who are continually, continuously rebellious. He delights to show mercy, delights to show grace to those who don't deserve it, to those who are unworthy. And let me pause for just a moment and ask you a question. So while I've been talking here for these few minutes about this story of Abram, about this story of Lot, about how God uses people to accomplish his purposes, how God uses his people or uses the church to extend grace to those outside the family of God, how many of you have imagined yourself in this story in the place of Abram? You've imagined yourself as the one who is generous, as the one who helps this poor man Lot. I don't want you to show hands, but I want you to be honest with yourself for a second. As you've listened to this story, where did you insert yourself in it? Who, who were you envisioning that you would be in this passage? Before you cast yourself in the role of Abram, and go out looking for poor, helpless individuals to rescue, you need to recognize first and foremost that you're actually Lot in this story. You're Lot. And just as he needed to be selflessly rescued, so did you, so did I, so did we. The Bible tells us that we are actually in bondage and slavery to sin, and that we need a redeemer. And Jesus throughout the Bible is shown to be a greater and better and truer and more perfect Abram. He is the only one truly that can rescue us from captivity, from the captivity of sin and death and lead us as a king in victorious procession. See, Abram's mission to rescue Lot was full of risk, wasn't it? He didn't have to go rescue Lot. He was doing okay where he was hanging out by the Oaks of Mamre with his buddies. His nephew gets taken away. He didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it, and it was risky to take his men to pursue these kings. But ultimately, it actually didn't cost him anything at all. The Bible doesn't tell us that he lost any of his men. This seems to be a total rout. Cost him maybe a little time, a little energy, a little planning, a little mental effort. But Jesus' mission, the greater Abram, his mission to rescue us cost him everything. He gave up equality with God. He took on human flesh, was born of a virgin. He lived a flawless life, and yet he was crucified for us. He was executed like a criminal. His rescue mission for us cost him everything. In the Apostle Paul, he writes in Romans that we were reconciled to God. We were made right with God through the death of Jesus when we were still sinners, when we were still his enemies. That's Romans chapter 5, 8, and 10. 
Just as God rescued Lot, despite his desire and love for Sodom, so God rescues us, despite our desires and loves that are also misplaced. He knows that you, that I, that us, he knows that we're prone to wander. He knows that we're drawn to idolatry, to making good things into ultimate things. He knows that you and I have valued, are valuing, and will value and worship other things like our positions and possessions and pacifiers, that we'll worship all these things over him. But nonetheless, God is committed to rescuing you and me. Jack Miller was the former pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Wonderful pastor, wonderful ministry, and he would put it this way. He would say this, cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, but you are more loved than you ever dared hope. Cheer up. And I wonder if for many of us here this morning, those of us that call ourselves Christians, I wonder if what we may need to do in response to this idea that we're a lot and to be reminded of that is really to confess our self-righteousness. <laughs> is to confess that we truly were and still are undeserving of the love and mercy of God. I'm all, I turned 35 this month, so I'm still young, but... As I have gotten older, I've come to realize that it's a funny thing about being a Christian, about being a follower of Jesus, that as you serve him for a while, the natural drift is towards becoming the older brother in Jesus's parable of the two sons, that we tend to become smug and proud and self-righteous. And unless we actively push against it with the Holy Spirit's power, we become like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, who's standing in the temple, prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, or even like this guy, this tax collector. Thank you, God, I'm not like him. And we become like that. But instead, what we need to be is that tax collector, who next to the Pharisee, he won't even look up at heaven, but he beats his chest. He knows how unworthy he is, and all he says, all he prays is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When I told you the story at the beginning of the sermon about Ryan Sibley, the guy in Austin, Texas, I left out one detail from that article. Eleven months before that winter storm, he nearly died of a motorcycle accident. He shattered his pelvic bone, had all this damage in his body, he had extensive surgeries, and he also sustained a traumatic brain injury, which actually left him unable to go to work at, to his previous job. And in that article, he explains his motivation to help all of those stranded tourists in this way, not tourists, motorists, excuse me, in this way. May have been some tourists, that would have been, that would have been no good. I've been in a place of begging for help and feeling powerless. So being able to do something to help others makes me feel like I'm part of something again. See, it was because of his experience of receiving assistance in the 11 months since his accident leading up to that, his experience of receiving help in time of need, that Ryan Sibley was able to then give assistance to others so freely in their time of need. And the same is true for us as followers of Jesus. We can extend God's mercy 
and grace because we have first received it. And we participate in God's rescue plan because we were first rescued. And that's grace. Now, finally, I want to talk about community for just a moment. And this is where I'll wrap up. So, so far this morning, our text, I believe, has invited us to participate in God's mission, like Abram. It's invited us to receive mercy and grace like Lot. But let me suggest as well that there's another invitation here that's a little less obvious and maybe not totally connected to the passage, but one that I think makes sense nonetheless. And it's an invitation to enter into relationship with other followers of Jesus in community. See, one of the limits that we all need to accept is that we are not enough by ourselves and that we need other people. And this can be difficult, I think, for us to accept, a difficult reality to accept, because we all want to be superhuman. We all want to be that autonomous, successful, lone ranger individual who doesn't need anyone. The one who helps but doesn't need help. The one who counsels but doesn't need counseling. The one who gives but doesn't ever need to receive. But that's just not true. That's just not true. God created us for relationship, for community from the very beginning. When God created Eve out of Adam in Genesis chapter 2, he said, it is not good that the man should be alone. God designed us as his image bearers to need and depend on other people in order to be fully human, in order to be our best selves. Pastor and author Paul David Tripp puts it this way. The self-sufficient, self-made individualism of Western culture is foreign to Scripture. The goal of a person's life is not to be a healthy individual. The goal is to be a person living in community with other people who are living in community with God. And I would even go one step further than Tripp, maybe, and say that you can't be a healthy individual without community anyway, even if that is your goal. That you need relationships of encouragement and accountability. You need relationships that point you to the cross, that remind you how screwed up you are, but also how loved you are. And this is why, a moment ago, before I started preaching, we have home meetings. This is why we have small groups at our church. This is why we believe it's really important that for 90 minutes and one night per week, you carve out time to gather with other men and women of faith. See, the truth is that sometimes when you're part of a gospel community, a small group, a home meeting, whatever, sometimes you get to be Abram. Sometimes you get to be that person who is generous and gives. But oftentimes, if we're all honest, we recognize that we're all lot at different times, and maybe more often. We all at some point are the one who has made poor decisions, the one who has fallen into sin, the one who has gotten involved with the wrong crowd, or mistreated our spouse, or friends, or classmates, or lost our temper on our kids, or screwed up at work. The list could go on. At some point, all of us need a godly man, or a godly woman, or a whole group of godly men and women to intervene on our behalf. And I've never talked to Lot for obvious reasons, but I bet Lot was really happy to have had a relationship with Abram when the time came that he needed it. That connection, that relationship that he had saved his life. 
And so Liberty Church Collinswood, my exhortation to you this morning, my encouragement to you as I close is simple. Be overwhelmed by the grace of God before you attempt to be an instrument for God. Be enamored with the rescuer before going out and attempting to do any rescuing. And invest in relationships with others who are likewise overwhelmed and who are likewise enamored. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.